Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for joining a, another episode of The Few. Today's guest is a phenomenal, let's just say, oh, is geek too strong a word? I'm not sure, but someone who has turned their intellectual prowess into a commercial enterprise and uniquely blends some of this intellectual firepower with comedy, insight, and engaging stories that really help people uh, to comprehend some of the complexities of life and turn that complexity into simplicity. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Adam Spencer, thanks, mate, for joining me on The Few today. Really appreciate it. How's your day been? Wonderful to be here, Boo. I love the intro music, mate. I feel like I'm running out for a preliminary final, ready to have the game of my life. I'm pumped. <laughs> oh, I'm glad, mate. You know, and it's an early-ish morning here. I think it's a nice way to start the day. Music has that effect on people, doesn't it? There's something about music that really gets into your soul and, and invigorates you. Are, you. are you into your music? I was on breakfast for six years at Triple J, so I've got what I'd like to think is probably a reasonably indie music sensibility. And I've got two things. I've got really big into that sort of mid-tempo, quite melodic European techno sort of thing. So I've got a couple of favourite Spotify channels oh, nice. that I've always got going in the background when I'm working or playing chess or whatever just to keep pumping me along. But I'm also a big fan of the uh, sort of indie rock, very guitar-heavy, big guitar solos, Dandy Warhols, War on Drugs type stuff. And I've got no qualms. When I'm at the gym, a lot of people are just listening to their music at the gym and that's fine. But if I'm walking around in between a couple of exercises just and a seriously good guitar solo comes on, I've got no trouble just... Just crank out the air guitar. Doing a bit of that. Not like histrionically ridiculous, but just trying to think what it must be like <laughs> to be moving through those sort of combos. And I, I lose myself in music all the time. It's interesting you, you talk about that this morning. I was reflecting on what people do and how they do it. Now, obviously, there's a lot of people that love music. They're very talented, but there's very few that manage to turn themselves into a, into a rock band. And I would say with your background, particularly in Triple J, which is renowned here in Australia for bringing breakout bands and musos into the market and taking a risk and a punt on new music. When it comes to being successful in music, was there any differentiator? Was there something that you observed? I mean, you spent a lot of time in that world. What was it that made an artist a breakout or is it just plain blind luck? Look, it's the actual first just cut through hit. It's quite random. It's interesting how much it's changed now because we were back there pre-internet and, and we launched the concept of Unearth, which has become quite a major industry in Australian music now. But we used to tell people, if you can hear us on the following radio frequency, send in your cassette or your CD that you've burned at home of your band and we'll listen to them. That's now a giant online digital marketplace for bands to be discovered. The way that technology's changed things in particular my kid's age, back in my day, if there was a band you really liked, you'd only find something related to them. If someone who you knew who owned an album said, oh, if you like that, I'll go home and bring another album to you or buy this from the shops or whatever. The ability of 
platforms like Spotify now to recommend related material, or you only need to be reading an interview with an artist you like, and they go, oh, I really love the new album by Blah. And within 15 seconds, you can be listening to that album. What used to interest me more, Boo, than what made the breakthrough hit was more observing the artists who had longevity and could actually make a career out of it. I could not count the number of one-hit wonders I met across the journey, and that's not being dismissive to them. It's a work of art to be able to create a brilliant, catchy pop song. But the vast bulk of people you hear on the radio, that song you're hearing is the only song from them you will ever hear. They just struck it lucky with some beautiful hook. It's the people who could churn it out in the third album, the fourth album, the people I'd still be interested listening to 15 years on for their new stuff, not just playing the awesome hits that I really mm, love as well. Mm. That sort of ongoing creativity and bands that could evolve over time. The Beatles were the first ones to do it. Listen to mm, the Beatles' mm. final couple of albums and listen to some of that weird I am the Eggman, we are the walrus, cuckoo, cachoo, compared to I want to <laughs> hold your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that evolution's incredible. So bands who keep it fresh and go across multi-genres and are still interesting 10, 20 years on, the same with an author or an actor or any sort of artistic person who manages to stay fresh and evolve, I find that the really interesting thing to watch. I love that word evolve. I think when you think about change or forced change or forced transformation, it's something that just never seems to work. And I guess you see that in some artists that just come out so different. They've missed a step. They've missed that slow burn evolution. What do you think some of the key... Sorry, but this goes across a lot of genres. So I did a bit of stand-up comedy before I moved into the other stuff. And on the stand-up circuit too, there were famous some people who had an hilarious seven-minute set. They'd been doing that same seven minutes for five or six years at various pubs and clubs because they knew it worked. But they were terrified to let go Mm. of the Scooby-Doo joke and try something new because the (laughs) Scooby-Doo joke always works. But they'd stay in that small niche. And I used to say to people, it's in the comedy business, it's in the media business, it's in workplace careers, it's everything. Once every six months, you've got to do something that really scares you, that you're really not sure if you're able to do. Get out of that comfort zone, broaden your skill set, But also, if you've got a little bit comfortable with where you were up until then, get back to realising what it's like to start from scratch and really work hard on something because you're fueled by a little bit of deep down fear that you're not quite sure if you're going to land this. So I work now in the corporate MC and keynote space. And a lot of the gigs I do tend to concentrate on digital transformation, amazing technology. And that's great because it's evolving at such a rate every three months, your talk's completely new anyway. But once every six months, once a year, I'll agree to give a keynote or appear at a conference or something that's well out of what I normally would do because I go back and I work on that as hard as I've ever worked on anything. And I remember back to when I was working so hard for the first time because I just didn't know what I was doing. I take myself into that Mm. sort of space every six months. And it used to be the same I'd find with the artists who'd keep doing stuff. You find it with the television stars who are mega famous and they've got a character they play, then they'll go and do some weird off-Broadway play. Mm, or you'll find mm. them in some indie film where you're going, dude, you're the funny guy. What are you doing murdering ghosts in 400 BC or whatever? It's those people who have that expansion evolution mindset 
of wanting to challenge themselves with new things, I find they're the ones who tend to stay in the game, whatever the game might be, longer and stronger because they're not arrogant enough to think, I've got this, I know everything. And they're not too afraid to think, let's try something that I really don't know if I can do it or not. That's interesting, a point that you make. And I guess there's a difference between advice and a life lived. And if you look at your CV, your resume, your past, mate, you've jumped all over the shop. I mean, you've clearly, you know, academic and highly gifted in terms of a mathematician. You've made segues between radio shows, TV, stand-up comedy. I mean, have you been diagnosed with ADHD? What's the common thread there? Because there's always method to this type of madness. I mean, you're a prolific publisher. What is it, mate, that gives you the drive? And what's the thread that holds it all together? Yeah, look, you can either give it the very flattering spin that you've given it there, Boo, and thank you. Or you can say, in the last 30 years, I've almost succeeded at an incredibly wide range of things. (laughs) (laughs) There's a natural curiosity to try things that are new. And the one skill I think I do have, the one thing that probably unites it all, is whether I know any subjects in absolute professional world's best depth or not is highly dubious, but I'm pretty quick at picking up the conversation and tone and basics of something, and I'm pretty good at engaging in the conversations around that, and I'm good at bringing out the best in other people in that space. So I say with my corporate work, for the love of God, you don't want me writing your cybersecurity strategy. You don't want me writing the code to protect you from ransomware. But when you've got an expert in your organization who's done it, and you want them to tell their story, you want me interviewing that person. Now, recently, Brian Green, the world-class astrophysicist, was in Australia doing a speaking tour, and I was in conversation with him. I'm not qualified to read one of Brian's scientific papers at the cutting edge of what he does. You don't want me in the lab with him trying to extend string theory into parallel dimensions in other universes and things like that. But if you want someone to have a conversation with him, he sort of gets what he's saying and can pitch it really well for the audience to come along with that. I'm a storyteller more than anything, I think, and just a bit of a nerdy storyteller at that. That's the gig for me. And the reason I love that is it keeps it fresh. In the summer, I used to love the breakfast radio show because when you're doing a news-based breakfast radio show, every day is completely new. You start with a blank piece, an almost entirely blank piece of paper most days. You're often doing an interview with someone who you only knew 30 seconds ago you were going to be chatting to, and you're literally flying by the seat of your pants. Now, the other sort of mindset that some people have of where they can give incredible depth, laser focus on a single project for six months and just make it their life, whether it's an actor in a stage play, and I know each show is different, but who does 168 performances of the same play and hits that character every night when they're tired, when they're sick, when they're bored, when they've had a fight with their boyfriend, when their stomach's feeling a little bit queasy, bang, bang, I'm in awe of that. Someone who can take a major corporate project from genesis through all the aspects of it to delivery blows my mind. But by about Friday of the first week, I'd be going, oh, yeah, look, can someone else take this from here? I want to go and do something else. So for me, it's that sort of eternal curiosity, conversation-driven thing is probably the thing that unites everything I've done. But it's important to be the storyteller. And I've certainly, you know, from coming from a very structured scientific fighter pilot background into trying to help companies execute strategy, that the storytelling is actually the part that gets it done at scale. If you're unable to engage 40,000 employees with a great story, 
they're not going to remember the financial targets. They're not going to remember that detail. And and one of the things I also find fascinating is sometimes people run people down on TV or the radio or you know, Fox News, people who come across as being overly simplistic in the way that they convey the information. But I think what people fail to understand is being able to be that simplistic and resonate with so many people is an absolute art form. To compress a highly complex mix match of belief systems and complexity of humanity and get cut through and get like millions of viewers is is an absolute art. Uh, so how important is that for leaders to be able to take the science of what they're trying to get done, their sales targets or their production targets, but flip that into into a story? Because no one remembers how many people were in the in the army with the hobbits, you know, in uh, Lord of the Rings. They just remember the story of the Lord of the Rings and the inspirational pieces. So do you have any sort of top tips for leaders in terms of getting all of that complexity distilled into a compelling story? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It depends on your audience. There are some people who you do need to have a bit more technical detail to bring them on the journey. There are others who you're selling on the big message. I think the real skill in general, I'm pretty handy at public speaking. And a lot of people ask me, how does public speaking work? I get really nervous about it. Speaking and storytelling in that sense like anything is a practiced skill. The more you do of it, the better you will get. And when it comes to communicating, you can communicate through email, but we communicate through words. It's the most powerful thing we have. When you want to practice communicating through words, actually speaking out loud is the way to do it. If I speak to someone before an event, I go, you across your speech and they go, mate, I've read it 20 times. Yeah, good. Have you read it out loud from go, to woe. I'm doing a corporate presentation this afternoon and I've been brought in pretty late to it because someone else had to pull out sick. I'm really excited about talking to these people. They're a little bit more specialist than the general audience I often speak to. So on some of these chat GPT-4 plugins and all that, we're going to dive a little bit deeper. And some of the material I'm presenting for this afternoon, I'm presenting for the very first time. I've been driving a few places the last couple of days saying slabs of this out loud just to hear how the story sounds coming out of my mouth. And certain lines that I know now I will use this afternoon have evolved over four or five practice runs, dropping the steps under footy, picking up something for the wife this morning because she was making breakfast for the kids and was a little bit behind time. It's ready to go this afternoon because I've given this three or four dry runs off Broadway now. There's no way I would front up this afternoon and deliver some of these words for the first time. So storytelling as an art, you do get better with practice. And one of the challenges for leaders is you need people around you who will be honest enough to give you the feedback of whether that story is making sense or not. I do sometimes sit there at corporate presentations, side of stage, watching, going, this just hasn't been run by enough people. No one's been honest enough to say, can I level with you here, Sarah? That story about the ski holiday just think it goes too long or don't quite get there. I used to be with stand-up comedy, mate. I used to say all the time, when you're starting in stand-up, you need a small group of friends around you who will be honest with you. Yeah. And you need someone who will say, dude, I think it's so great that you're trying this. I'll be honest with you, mate. I've heard the pigeon joke four times now. Yeah. I just... I just Do you have a pigeon joke, mate? Yeah. I used to have one until one friend said, I just <laughs> uh, I don't think it's funny. You need that sort of... It's not, no, mate, it wasn't the audience. It can't have been the audience four nights in a row, mate. It's not the lights. That material just needs more work. Now, some leaders are beautiful, natural storytellers. The story you're telling has to be something you believe or you will come across as fake, but you need to practice telling that story. 
and you need feedback for how well you tell it. You so often in organizations see leaders who are clearly at a level that no one's comfortable giving them honest feedback. I did something recently with Stephen Sheeler, who headed up Facebook in Australia, New Zealand, back in the early 2000s. This is when their take on an Instagram and really starting to grow. And the Australian New Zealand was one of the most progressive and fastest expanding arms of the empire. And when he'd finished, we had a couple of time for a brief Q&A. And I was asking him about, how do you tell Mark Zuckerberg he's got something wrong? And he, he had a great chat about that. And someone like Zuckerberg's got to be willing to hear it. And you've got to be brave enough to say it. And so a big part of leaders is practice telling your story to an appreciative but honest audience who will give you feedback. Don't take it out on the road for the first time and see if it flies in front of 800 of your senior managers. But it's that concept applies to any aspect of being a leader, whether it's your strategy, whether it's a piece of communication, whether it's an, another investment decision. But what was it about comedy? I guess for a lot of leaders, particularly if you're not quite post-ego, you still think you're pretty cool for being in that role. When you're communicating with ego, you're more concerned with what you're saying, not what's being heard. But I imagine as a comedian, you flip that because it's so important the way people hear what you're saying. Right? You could say something that on paper is pretty funny, but if the timing's off or the inflection's wrong, I mean, how does that affect your, your ego being a stand-up comedian? Yeah, there's, there's two interesting aspects to delivering with comedy. So before I got into any of that, I did a lot of, the big breakthrough for me at high school, I did a lot of debating. I got a scholarship to school, that, a school that took debating as seriously as schools take rugby and cricket and all that sort of stuff. And we were in a year that were particularly average at rugby and cricket, and we were a really good debating team. So we used to have the first 15 rugby would turn up to watch us debate on Friday night, and they'd give us a tunnel and shout us into the debate, <laughs> watch us destroy their opponents. Then we'd go out the next day and watch them get massacred and sit politely clapping on the sideline. And my debating style was always sort of giggle, giggle, bang, giggle, giggle, bang. And the comedy would be disarming. It'd bring the audience in. It'd break the ice. It'd have people want to listen more. And then it contrasts beautifully with the powerful point. And the other thing about comedy and the way you have to deliver it, especially if you're in a position of power, as the leader or as the keynote speaker or anything, you can't punch down. You can't use the comedy to humiliate. You can't do that thing that some stand-ups can do when someone walks in late. Hey, mate, what are you doing? And then have a bit of fun at the crowd and maybe get everyone in the crowd laughing at that person. So the way I use comedy when I present, presenting myself as the lovable geek and going through just how nerdy I was growing up, it's all self-effacing. The jokes for the vast bulk are turned back on me. And once I've turned a few jokes on myself and said, look, I'm willing to laugh at myself as a maths nerd, I can then crack jokes about this audience and its profession and the difference between an actuary and a data analyst or whatever and take the piss out of the actuaries a bit. And they'll love it because I've already laughed at myself. I just walk out and start doing jokes about insurance. I'm just going to look there going, dude, well, one, how would you know? And two, we didn't invite you here to insult us, mate. We actually work in this profession and really like now, if I get up and make piss out of myself first and then flip it and use a bit of humour to make a point, that works really well. You can't punch down, but you can use humour as a lovely way of breaking the ice and bringing the audience in and then bang. But it's a matter of what humour style as well. Some people are really good at telling outright jokes. Others aren't, and it, it's clunky. But you can always use just a bit of light and shade. You can always use a visual cue. You can always use something that, 
just tilts the balance slightly as opposed to the absolute gut-busting. Find your style. Again, it's a practice thing, but humour can be a great tool and it doesn't have to cheapen the message. It doesn't have to be, you just stood there and told jokes, mate. Where was the... I've been doing a lot of work the last couple of weeks with the coronation. I'm part of the Australian Republican movement. So I've been speaking about the need for a republic. I'm not there just taking the piss out of Prince Charles and King Charles and insulting him. That's not going to help at all. But that coronation was pretty amazing, right? Yeah. Someone said, what were your favourite two parts of the coronation the other night? And I said, I love the Stone of Destiny. Wasn't quite sure if it was a Monty Python (laughs) sketch or an episode of Doctor Who, but I love the Stone of Destiny. And I said, that bit where he got his son to kneel down and swear an oath of loyalty and obedience to his father, mate, I'm locking that in for my birthday party with my kids <laughs> for the next five years. Right? Now that's taking a, that's a bit of a cheek. And all the other heads of states, mate. The fact that he had like prime ministers, funny we could do that in the office, the CEO, yeah. and just get the pledge of fealty and put the stone of destiny in the boardroom. That's a bit of a cheeky look at the whole how anachronistic and historical that is, but it's not calling King Charles a dickhead, you know, but you can have that humour and then make a point of, but to be honest, when I see that, I don't see an Australian head of state. That doesn't strike me as egalitarian, democratic, the things that drive us. So you've used the humour to make a little bit of a point and then you roll something a little bit more serious through on the sort of wave of it in that case. And I think it's a good point you make because in business especially, and this seems to be breaking down a little bit more now that we've got this whole life integration with work, but there's that perception that you can't be humorous at work and there's no, everything is serious all the time. And I think the point you're making is comedy is not slapstick, throw a pie in your face, three stooges stuff. It's just a way of crafting a story that's more engaging and lighthearted. Is there any sort of tip you have for finding that balance there? And then after that, I've got a placeholder for a question to talk about, you know, growing up. But what would you say to a CEO that might have 60,000 staff and he or she wants to make an impact? Is there no scope for humour or is there a little bit sprinkled through? Is it critical? Yeah, absolutely. And if you can come across as relatable, if you get a laugh out of people, they just don't even realise it, but subconsciously they warm to you. But unless you're pretty practised at the craft, I would not be trying out any gear for the first time on a large audience. The thing that always shocks me, Boo, when I'm doing the corporate stuff and I'm emceeing some big event, and not just numerically big, but in the scope of this organisation, this is their big one. It's their kickoff for the year, or it's their major presentation to thousands of potential customers. And we're there backstage and it's about 8.30 in the morning. We've got a nine o'clock call and at quarter past nine, the first keynote speaker from the C-suite's going to present. The number of times I've seen that C-suite speaker come in with a memory stick saying, look, I've made a couple of changes. Can I have a look at the thing? I just want to change a couple of things. Thanks, guys. Now, unless you are delivering stock market sensitive information that by law has to be within six hours old, if this gig is as big as it is and you're changing something on the day, dude, you're just not prepared enough. And you should have had someone in your orbit saying, Okay, we're giving the major presentation to the 2,000 potential customers at the event that we hope generates $100 million in sales over the next five years. We're doing that on the 15th. We will have our first practice of this on the 1st. We'll practice it again on the 5th. We'll have a real strip-back session where we tear it to pieces. You will then practice it on the 10th and the 12th, and you'll deliver it on the 15th. If that's not worth three or four dry runs, I don't know what it is you want. And, And these people, it's easy for me to say, I've got no idea how busy you must be being the CFO of a major telco or the head of 
whatever at a big bank. But if this is your big one and you're walking out trying stuff for the first time, mate, you're walking without a net and good luck to you. Practice and a bit of time. It's in those moments where you're capturing the imagination and the motivation of your So four hours spent on that preparation can save you 4,000 hours in execution. If those key points get across right, it's this whole concept of I'm busy. And it's like, well, are you busy or are you productive? I mean, you're just running around chasing your tail and putting out bush fires, which seems to be what most people are doing. You're going to make these changes to the talk anyway at some stage. So just have the priority get that done a few days beforehand. So when you practice it a couple of times, a couple of days earlier, you're practicing the final product because if you're truly comfortable with the material, then on the day you can just jump off and try some little impro that comes into your head. You can respond and throw in a little cheeky back reference to what the boss just said when they were introducing you because you're totally comfortable with everything else around you. I gave a big TED talk back in 2013 and they don't muck around with TED. They really, you rehearse it to within an inch of your life but I gave a 17-minute TED Talk. I don't stumble on a single word in that talk. And looking back on it, there's one word I used in the entire talk that I was planning to use a slightly different nuanced word and just a different word came out. That's the entire departure from where I wanted to be was a little small asterisk against one word that no one else even noticed because I knew that was one of the big presentations mm -hmm. I was ever going to give in my life. So I gave it the appropriate amount of practice. Yeah, we have a saying in the Air Force, you know, the perfect preparation prevents piss poor performance. And part of what you've learned is if all your basics and your basic messaging or your basic plan, if it's all rehearsed and well known in the moment when you're on the spot, when you're flying, when you're delivering a stand up, when you're on stage or in a town hall with everyone, you've got 98% of it already buttoned down. That's where creativity comes from in the moment, right? That's where you read. If you're not prepared, you won't have the perception out there. You won't be picking up the mood of the room because you're too busy running through a Microsoft Word document through your head. That just cogs at a time. You want to jump back a bit, mate. The other way to think of it is when people ask you, how can I make this better? How can I get better at this? They're subconsciously thinking, how do I take the very best I can conceivably do and make that a bit better? And I say, don't think about that. Most of the time, you're probably performing at your seven and a half out of 10. Occasionally, you'll hit an eight and a nine or whatever. Let's not worry about making your nine and a half that you deliver one every 10 times a little bit better. Let's take your seven and a half, your fallback standard default level of presentation. And let's lift that so that on the days that you turn up and nothing goes off the charts, unbelievable, but you just turn up and give a typical good solid performance for you. As a cricketer, rather than getting you to score one more century every three years, let's raise your batting average from 35 to 45 so that you're just reliably better all the time. And that's where practice and preparation, that's what you want. Consistently surpass expectations. Yeah. Now let's talk about, you know, there's, there's a lot of psychology around childhood being pretty much setting the foundation for the rest of our life. I remember seeing an interview with Tim Allen, the comedian, and he said that comedy is what enabled him to survive in prison in that the, his ability to disarm and not fight and to get people on board was just as powerful as the individuals in prison that could fight and were mm. able to express their power in that form. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. 
was there anything about your childhood or what was it about the debating and bringing the layers of comedy in and being a geek? Because when you were a geek, it probably wasn't as cool as what a geek is today, right? What was that like? I had a wonky eye. I was really good at mathematics and I liked debating. So yeah, hello, ladies. You should have seen the Spence in high school. <laughs> Look, I didn't get much of the brutal bullying or anything like that. But in the early, like in the early days of primary school, I got a lot of wonky eye, bung eye, glass eye, that sort of stuff. And I did find pretty quickly spinning it round and creating a joke out of it or fighting back with words instead of fists was a pretty good way to disarm situations and either confuse the person who was being a bit nasty to you or get everyone just to have a bit of a laugh and off we, we moved and moved on. So my mind's always worked very quickly with words. So in terms of debating, I came up with ideas quicker than people. I could put a speech together really quickly. Whether what I say is gut-bustingly funny or not, it comes to me quick enough. I don't often sit there going, oh, that sense you get 10 seconds later of, oh, God, I oh. Yeah, I wish I said it then. Mm. Yeah, I've always tended to be fast enough to find that gap. And then I think years of Breakfast Radio hones that skill. So you're absolutely right. People love the disarming of a bit of, and it doesn't have to be a gut busting, you could take that out on stage type joke. Just lightening the mood, just saying something a little bit weird, a little bit different that requires people thinking slightly different and changes the tempo, changes the tone of a conversation is a really powerful skill to have and I was lucky enough to have that from a pretty early age. Do you think what came first the talent to do that or the necessity to do it to survive in an environment where you know kids are the most brutal environment on the planet I, I see my kids and, and I see how they treat each other it's just brutal right and there's an element of capitulation or lean in and make the most of it and you know it sounds like that mental agility that comes from maybe deflecting some of that negativity and bullying type behavior. I mean, I know I'm an amateur neuroscientist here, but all this neural pathway stuff and forging them early on. Do you think that maybe there's an element of the point I'm trying to make here is that some of the things that certain people do to survive equal bigger, better performance in life. And what my thesis here is as fighter pilots, we're fundamentally taught to survive and be safe. That's the most important thing. Don't hit the ground. Don't run into someone else. Don't drop your bomb. But the byproduct of the, all of that safety and security is actually all the stuff you do to be really you know, agile mentally and to be able to achieve this cut through. So I'm just curious as to whether, you know, the survival instinct and the survival mechanisms that you needed to survive, the byproduct of that was actually some really handy skills that have helped you to thrive. Because what you've done and being successful in different fields if you think of the average person, how they just start at the age of 21 in a career and just work their way up and their whole career progression is based on what they did yesterday, whereas yours is, you know, you've just created stuff out of nothing. Is there potentially a link there or am I just reaching for an apple too high up in the tree? Look, it's an interesting one. I mean, you might only be an amateur neuropsychologist, but you're a much better neuropsychologist than I am a fighter pilot, mate. Trust me on that. <laughs> you're going back so far, I can't definitively answer the question. I don't remember ever going home wishing I was funny or wishing I could be a bit faster in my response. It was always my sort of natural default position. I've always been pretty chirpy. There was a guy who I was interviewed once when I, uh, they did a big feature piece when I started the major ABC radio program in Sydney in 2006. They did a big feature piece in the uh, Herald magazine and they reached out to a few of my friends and one of my, probably my longest standing mate, and he's been a mate since I was in third grade. You know, we've known each other for 
45 years and they interviewed him and they were talking about the family I grew up in and Scott was saying that my mum and dad were lovely people but they weren't afraid to use a bit of discipline if the kids had strayed and so the phrase that Scott used was Adam's had his fair share of clip behind the ears for back chat and he said don't get me wrong it was good quality back chat but it was back chat nonetheless <laughs> so I've always been you know had that bit of a sort of smart ass to me yep. being a yep. little bit happy to try and provoke and be a bit quick so I don't ever remember lacking that skill and needing to work on it but as with anything the more you do the better you get. it was the same with the mathematics but I did have a natural affinity for maths pretty early so I was a bit lucky like that and I'm, I was very competitive as a young kid so when maths is a subject where you're right or you're wrong and you can get a better mark than other and you can come top in the class that sort of stuff excited me but my mates used to say, oh, it's, easy. it's easy for you, mate. You're just a maths genius. I certainly wasn't a maths genius, but I guarantee you one thing, I did 10 times as much maths as they did. Yeah. Because I loved it. You know, yep. when the teacher had set 10 questions in the book for homework, there's 30 questions. What about the other 20? You know, mm. why, why mm. wouldn't you do mm. them and bring them into Ms. Russell and say, by the way, I think there's a misprint in question 27? Because I did it four times and I kept getting the same answer and it's wrong to the one in the book. Yeah, you know, I just, I used to love that. And it's the same with any, you know, if at age 10, you know, two kids, one of whom's an absolutely brilliant tennis player, they both sort of like tennis, guarantee you the kid who's brilliant practices four times as much as the kid who's sort of okay, because they love it. I've got some other philosophies around. You look at the ebbs and flows of civilizations and startup businesses and family wealth. You've always seemed to have the hard charging competitive passion side and then over generations we, we fade out and I think to some degree in the west that's starting to happen anyway digress because what I want to talk about more importantly is the number of books that you've published for many people publishing one book in a lifetime is something that is a major achievement but you've published almost 10 11 12 books some yeah. phenomenal amount it, it depends how you count them because most of them I've written entirely by myself a couple are people who've taken my material from an older age group and repackaged it for younger. And I've sort of had a little watching brief on it. So yeah, anywhere between eight and 12. And it's a bit weird when the maths guy can't tell you the exact number of books he's written. But <laughs> the difference there is that, so I'm in awe with that. Again, we talked about long-term focus. Someone who can write a novel, someone who can from the genesis of an idea of a single character or a single moment, nine months later, have 70,000 words which is the 15th draft of it, boom, and ready to go off to the publishers, where that's been the thing they've done, sometimes for 12 hours a day, sometimes for just two hours, but nothing will come. But that's been their focus. I'm in awe, in awe of that. The stuff that I tend to create, Boo, is popular mathematics for really curious minds. And it tends to really kick in for kids in that sort of very early high school, you know, age 12, 13 in Australia, who are getting a bit bored by what they're getting at school. Now, there's no point when they're 12 just showing them the 14-year-old school maths because when they're 14, they'll be bored out of their minds. But maths is so rich and so diverse. There's a world out there of stuff you can show that these kids will never encounter in a typical school, grad school, high school syllabus that's just mind-blowing and exciting. And if you, if you take your time and hold their hand and walk them along, they can get there. My books are full of mathematics, some of which you won't encounter until the very end of high school or university, some of which you'll never encounter at all, but it's just beautiful and it's interesting and it takes that sort of curious mind. But my books tend to be a collection of 250 
stories, puzzles, trivia, examples that I can just assemble in brick form. So that's the way I can do stuff. It's like 400 mini projects I've all got running at once as opposed to one that just happened to come together to make a book. So I'm on this thing all the time, right? If you look at my, God, look at my wife. That's oh, it looks a lovely photo, photo, huh? What a beautiful, beautiful pic. Oh. <laughs> got my, uh, the date we got married tattooed on my arm there. Anyway. Well, there's some nice symmetry there, mate. That's very numer two, I like one, two, two. numerical symmetry. Got married on palindrome, mate. Can't fool me. A lot of people are on social media and they go to pretty weird sites on TikTok and Twitter. My Twitter feed is things like topology today, algebra now, great moments in number theory. And I'll just see something beautiful, bit weird, click the graphic, save, throw it in a file, come back to it a year from now next time I'm writing a book and just assemble giant like there's something the other day like remember the old right angle triangle pythagoras's theorem i do remember that three squared plus four squared equals five squared that sort of thing there are literally hundreds of proofs of that theorem i love that stuff i love all when you start to scale it out through history and all the connections i mean there's a school of thought right that Mathematics is just a human expression of spirituality. Just quickly, these two college girls in the States recently came up with a new proof of Pythagoras' theorem, and it's quite different because it uses trigonometry and it's never been used before in a proof of it. So it's quite groundbreaking. And it's not that hard. You only need like year eight high school maths and you can do it. Took that graphic, double click, save. That'll be in my next book. Mind blown, beautiful. So I'm just constantly accumulating. And it's the same with the corporate presentations I do. There's so much stuff exploding in chat GPT. See something new and exciting, boom, have a quick talk about that. Now, the question about maths, that's really interesting. Let me ask you this, Boo. Mathematics, is there just one fundamental mathematics out there that we slowly stumble into, or do we choose the way we create it? Another way to think, if we went back and started again, would we have the mathematics we have today, or could we have created something completely new, completely different? What do you think? I think we could have created anything really. It was just a construct that we have a level of consciousness that we can't access readily, right? So we have to build these interfaces between the known and the binary and the deep subconscious and unconscious, right? So I think I've always been fascinated by math. I did a bachelor of mathematics for six weeks and walked out because I couldn't comprehend it. What I, again, I hate to bring back my fighter pilot all day, a bit like a high school footballer. But one of the really interesting things we had in fighter pilots was some fighter pilots were extremely analytical and mathematical and had honors and master's degree in physics and mathematics. And then there were pilots like me that just came straight out of school and were, were incredibly instinctive, but no one of those was better or worse. It was a different way of processing information, but the outcomes were the same. So I always thought that mathematics is a form of expression of spirituality of everything. In the mathematical world, there are people in both those camps, the one that you're in, I'm in the other camp that there is only one mathematics. And if we bump into an alien civilization, they might be further down the path, but they'll have the same maths as us. Or if we went back and started again, we'll get to the same mathematics that we have now. But it's a beautiful question that in some very deep ways is actually still open to interpretation. There are mathematical equations that stump people for decades, right? Is there not these, do people not create these formulas that- Yeah, there are two things there. One, there are, like the human brain's incredible. Imagine if you went to a planet where life had occurred and you'd got as far as pot plants and worms. Even that's amazing, right? But no thinking being on that planet understands that five sevens are 35. 
So there are there could be limitations in the human brain. There may well be things out there that are true that we'll just never have the capacity to comprehend and prove as true. There might be limits on what this brain, even augmented by an artificial general intelligence, can get to. Secondly, when you get into mathematical logic, in any mathematical system that starts with assumptions and axioms and builds out, there is by definition things that are either true or not true, but you cannot prove them to be true or not true. They have to be limits on the axiomatic reach. That observation in the 1920s was one of the deepest observations any human has ever made. It was a guy called Gödel, his incompleteness theorem. At the same time, this mathematics, which may well in its absolute be beyond us and have things we'll never be able to prove, at the same time, what we do have is a command of the world where we can build fighter jets, where we can land probes on comets in space, where we can measure the fluctuation in the electron moment to 15 percentage, 15 decimal places of accuracy. Your mobile phone, the GPS only works because your phone's talking to a couple of satellites up there. And we appreciate that where the satellites are with different gravitational effect because they're further from Earth and moving at speed. And we factor in Einstein's theory of relativity so that the satellite can talk to your phone. If we didn't understand what Einstein had showed about time and space itself being warpable and dependent on reference, your GPS would not work. So the ability we've used to harness and appreciate mathematics to improve our world is just stunning. It's amazing. I'm not gonna, we open these Pandora's boxes is when the podcast blows out. So we've got to put it back in. We'll have another chat another time. But there's a question I think a lot of people listening, I'm not in this camp and I'm kind of in it. For some people, they just say, I'm not good at maths. I can't do maths. What's going on there? Is that just a belief system or can some people just cannot conceptualize what math is? It's absolutely true. I've only really tried half-heartedly a couple of times to learn another language. I've never enjoyed it. And I've never sensed that I had the discipline in particular just to learn reams of vocab and words. I could possibly get excited by the, gram the, the sort of mathematical concept of grammar. I could get excited trying to speak English over the grammar of the way that you might speak, I don't, I don't know, another language, German. And maybe you, at the end of the sentence, the verb put or whatever. That in itself, I'd be interested in changing my expression of language into different laws. But then, okay, here's the 2,000 words you have to learn. Table is this. Pen is stilo. Just don't have the discipline. So I will never be able to learn another language. I accept that. It'd be wrong of me to say that everyone should be able to do extension mathematics in the HSC when there's no way I could pass a French exam if you gave me 1,000 years. But with anything, the quality of instruction, and if you practice, you'll get better at it. The challenge with maths, mate, is that the way it's presented incrementally you could go to a high school where they really value history and you could on day one of year seven go, no, nah, I don't care about history, mate. I'm sorry, I'm not even going to bother. And if on day one of year 11, you went, eh, actually, okay, I'll give history a crack. I'll go as hard as I can at history right now for the next two years with no disrespect to discipline of history. I think you could land with pretty close to the same final exam mark after 18 months of study as you could after the full six years at high school. With mathematics, if you have one semester where you don't get it, or one half year where you've got a teacher who's not qualified or isn't motivated, you can fall behind in a way that you can never get back on top again, because it's a truly incremental subject. You cannot understand 
the beginning of physics if you didn't understand the trigonometry. And you can't understand the trigonometry if you didn't understand the geometry. And you can't understand the geometry if you're no good at manipulating the algebra. Now, the payback is, if you're on top of it, you'll never have a difficult mathematics lesson in your life at school because everything's just a little small yeah, it's step just that incremental. you already be. I have great sympathy for people who really just can't do it. In the same way that someone's musically talented, probably feel sorry for someone who cannot hold a note to save their life. But anyone, even someone who can't sing, can get better at singing if they practice. So if you're motivated, you can get a lot better at maths than you think you can, but I can understand why some people lack the motivation. That's interesting insight. I've not heard that kind of incremental element to mathematics versus the kind of arts where you can invest time and effort and get yourself to a point where, well, it's all, look, history, arts, it's all a matter of perspective, I guess, whereas mathematics, whilst there's a degree of perspective, there's a lot of structure to it as well. So Spence, big life, lived a lot of it. You're at a point now where, well, not a point now, but you've been at a point for a while, giving a lot of that back, helping others. Uh, if there was one thing you tell yourself as a kid back in those geeky days, that would have made your journey either less painful or maybe accelerated, what would you have told yourself? In the specific field that's probably defined me more than anything else, which is mathematics, I wish I'd realised earlier that maths at school is important, but it's not just a matter of being really good at the maths at school. There's a complete world outside of there that you can throw yourself into. Someone had come and said to me in year seven or year eight, Adam, you're pretty good at maths at this school. But, mate, there's a lot of kids out there at other schools who are just as good or better than you at maths. And did you know you can actually go off to maths competitions? You can represent Australia in mathematics, Adam. And if someone had said to me, to be honest, mate, you've probably got the natural talent to get good enough to maybe represent Australia. But, Adam, I don't think you'd have the guts to work hard enough to do that. I really wish someone had poked that competitive aspect <laughs> of me because I realised when I'd been at uni for a while to be honest, really in the scope of people who were doing that higher, higher mathematics, my skill was more being able to absorb information really quickly. And by looking at the last 20 exams, work out logically what they were going to ask of me in the exam and getting outrageously good marks rather than a deeper, nuanced, really subtle appreciation of the mathematics. And I wish I'd known earlier that that was more of the path I should have taken. The phrase I use, mate, is in a room of randomly selected people, I'm a maths genius. In a room of maths PhDs, I'm as dumb as a box of hammers. <laughs> now, luckily, you don't find yourself in a room of maths PhDs all that often, but I've got no idea actually what the natural limits of my mathematical capacity are, and I wish I'd gone on a path. I'd much rather know that I have certain limits and I can't be any better than that than genuinely not knowing where that limit lies. The unrealized potential. Yeah. yeah. That's, For all I know, I have uh, realized every shred of potential I have in the field. I don't think I had, but I'd prefer to know that I had to know, here's your finish line, mate. You were a 78% as good as it can get than knowing, well, it's somewhere between 75 and 90, but I really don't know. That's a really uh, fascinating insight. And it's something that we've commonly heard on the show around people that were so busy on the achievement side that they didn't quite realize there was another element to what they were doing in sport or in aviation. They'll get to a point in their mid-30s and they're at the top of the field and it's like, oh, I forgot to enjoy that. I forgot to actually look at what I was doing. It's over. I can't barely remember it, but geez, I was good. One thing I've not forgot to do is enjoy the ride, mate. Don't worry about that. <laughs> well, there's a great flip side to that quote. On that note, Spence, thanks so much for joining me today on the few podcast. Really fascinating. And I wish we had a bit more time. Your insights were, were amazing. And it's great to see those two worlds coming together. 
the spiritual realm, the clinical mathematical realm. And it just shows that you know, the world and life is a complex interplay of many different things. And your insights into humor, comedy, giving people the opportunity to bring a bit of color to their communication was fantastic. And how do we find you, you Spence? I can see having you helping an organization at a conference, helping a leadership group with their messaging would be absolutely invaluable. Where can our listeners find you? I've just signed up with a new management team called Ode, O-D-E Management. But if you search for Adam Spencer on the web, you should come to my website. All the details are there. We'll have to do it again sometime. We'll get together, have a chat, and I'll explain to you how some infinities are bigger than others. Wow, mate. Can't wait. Can't wait. Thanks again, mate. Look forward to having you on the show again later. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners, without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too. 